It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Hi, this is Matt Parker, author of A Radical Enterprise, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Herska. With me, my partner in crime and fellow collaborator, Mr. Andrew Leff. Andrew, how is it hey. going? It's going. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And joining us a good afternoon uh, from across the Atlantic, uh, Mr. Martin Dalma. Hey, Martin. Hey, yeah, that's perfect. You did a great job. <laughs> I got it. So what we're going to talk about this week, folks, is we're going to talk about sprint goals. And this conversation is backed on Martin's newest book, Driving Value with Sprint Goals. So that makes me so happy. Those posted. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to start off, Martin, with the conversation with, um, I might have been your target audience, but not really. I was one of those people, and I'm going to admit this. I was one of those people who thought sprint goals were kind of hokey, kind of cheesy, way too much into that coachy-coachy side of Agile, which I think sometimes we lose the value delivery piece. I got 40 pages into this book, and, and I literally was that meme from Arrested Development where he said, I feel like I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> literally was how I felt like. And we're going to get into the details, but uh, for those of you who are listening, who are ready to check out because you don't like the sound of my voice, Martin doesn't just talk about sprint goals. He talks about program management, portfolio management, vision, strategy, all things and how they all literally tie together to create transparency in the system. So Martin, let, before we go into the book, let's talk a little bit about you. So how did, how did, how did this book come about? I mean, uh, some of your journey stuff is in the book and there's some great quotes there. What what led to you saying, you know what, I think I really want to write a book on sprint goals? Yeah, um, I, I kind of was like you, you know what I mean? I was a bit skeptical about sprint goals. And then uh, uh, when I started using it, using them, I, w- I became converted. And uh, um, yeah, I basically, I'm an avid reader. So when I, I realized, hey, this works, I suddenly realized I've read all these books. And of course it works. It makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, suddenly all, all these darts, dots started to be connected and then I had this feeling like I have to write a book about it because I think there are a lot of people out there who may be a bit skeptical about sprint goals. And uh, yeah, uh, by explaining why they work, uh, I hopefully can uh, help understand, make a few people understand what's the power of sprint goals. Do you hear me well? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I I switched the headphones so I can, there's no, a lot of <laughs> echo. So Lef, um, joining this conversation, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I was also not, I always thought that sprint goals were a distraction, right? Too abstract, too difficult for the teams to wrap their head around, or the coaches would push in a direction that the work didn't align to creating a goal like that. So what I'm curious about is through your reading and learning, right? How did you change it from going theory to application? How did you bridge the gap between a highly theoretical concept to putting it to action and having a team be able to consume it and work towards it, like, and believe it, right? Yeah. So maybe it's, it's good to tell the story of, uh, I was a skeptic, right? And and what changed my, my opinion? Because I think that gave me a crucial piece of the puzzle. So basically I was a product owner working at an e-commerce company and I was moved to another team. And basically they said, you cannot help your old team. And they didn't have a product owner. So my old team came to me and said, Martin, we're miserable. What do we have to do? And I said, yeah, I don't know. You don't have a product owner, right? So that's tough. You have to talk to stakeholders directly. And I told them, well, maybe you should use sprint goals. So just talk to your stakeholders and ask them, what's the one most important thing that you want to achieve and why it matters? And then you you use that to plan your work and to do your work because that will hopefully make your life easier. And of course, I didn't believe it at the time, but I did my best to sound like it was going to work. And then a few months later, they came back to me and they said, we're happier than ever. And the stakeholders are super happy. And you have to mind, they didn't have a product owner. I have to be very clear. And they were super happy. And that's when I realized, okay, like they don't need me as much as I think I do. And uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and, and I use that like 
next team I joined, I mainly started using sprint goals where I just really said like, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve. Why does it matter? Because when I joined this new team, the problem was um, they had to do something completely new, right? So they had no clue how to do it. So I had this scrum master who was a little bit inexperienced and he told me, Maranta, we need to do sprint zero. We need to do a vision. We need to do like basically four weeks of talking and not doing anything. And I just said, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do a proof of concept, small thing. This is the goal. And yeah, we did the proof of concept. And basically I told them, hey, what can happen, right? Let's say we do the proof of concept, figure out we can achieve the goal. Great. We have new information. We might like cancel our sprint, then maybe we'll get lucky. Well, we got lucky, right? So basically the proof of concept, it was the one ticket. Then we created all the other tickets afterwards. And yeah, by the end, we automated something like it was like automating a report for in a finance department. They were able to pick which one and it was finished. And, and that like, yeah, that really opened my mind to the power of sprint goals because otherwise it would have been delivered two to four weeks later, probably. <laughs> I I love the getting a little bit off silo. I love the idea, which I can't believe I didn't have this epiphany previously, but you actually talk about it in the book where sprint sprint goals are the best leading indicator for a team's odds of success. And yes. you don't put it in that many words, but it, it logically, I kind of, I have one of those moments where again, I'm standing there staring at my book with all my highlights and I'm going, well, duh, like, why didn't I think of this before? If you can't clearly elucidate what you're trying to accomplish in the next two weeks in a statement and what amounts to once we else, a banal statement, your the odds of your success are not great. And, yeah. and we, we struggle with teams who, who continuously deliver, deliver, deliver. But at the end, you're like, well, what did you deliver? Uh, and now I've started to look at some of the teams I'm working with to say, hey, do you guys have a sprint goal? No. Well, it's too hard. And, and then it goes into all the reasons what you talk about where it's there's there's so many reasons why um, if you can't do a good sprint goal, it's probably an indicator of this, this or that. So one of the things you talk about, Martin, and and you you don't really lean into the the coaching like Lef was using the example of the coaching side of sprint goals. It really is a means to an end to do to gather feedback, but to also create um minimize risk right so you talk about the idea of overconfident versus humble planning yeah and traditionally right. we're like oh well this will take two weeks and that'll take a week and that'll take four hours and that's overconfident we're, but you talk about humble planning can you talk a little bit about that more because i love that turn of phrase yeah so basically the, so in the, the book starts with a story right my childhood we are being dropped and you have to find your way back home and and that's kind of how i see as well doing complex home uh, complex work so when you're the complex work right you're in the dark you don't know all the steps and every step you take gives you more information so if i were to drop you in the dark right and i would tell you hey make a plan like how long is it going to take for you to get home you know like what is the exact steps you cannot do that right and and i think that's the same thing in software development we should start with humble plans, just like the proof of concept I was talking about, you know, just do a proof of concept, first step, then you do that. And then you plan the next steps because then you have to, you use the best information you have at the time, instead of like what I call like the fog of beforehand, right? Before starting, there's this fog, you're limited by that fog. And if you plan too much, you're going to add more fog because you need to, you make all these assumptions that are not rooted in reality. And then you get the fog of speculation. And I think this is a really a big problem. And yeah, Overconfident planning, that's what causes the fog of speculation. And if you do humble planning, then you remove the fog of the forehand because you're gradually planning as you discover and learn. So for uh, anybody who's listened to the show more than an episode I've hosted, you know, I'm a, everybody can tell I'm a big fan of one-liners and quotes, and this book has them in spades. Martin, I really think if you, and I, and I can share my agenda here, I have so many pull quotes here, but one of my favorite <laughs> quotes from this is to, to lean into what you just said. We need to work with what we do know to discover what we don't know. And that to me, that was, I had that up on a post-it here next to my wall, because that's, that's a good statement of here's, here's where sprint goals come into play. And to your point about humble planning and the fog of beforehand, work with what you've got to figure yeah. out where the holes are. And that is a, a it's a, it's a real easy, I mean, if I'm talking to a, a senior leader and left, I know you work in that rarefied atmosphere in the layer cake, Right. That's an easy one-liner. That's an easy hook to get them to, to get yeah. them to buy in. If you say, look, we need to work with what we know to find out what we don't. Ah, now I get it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I try to do with the book, right? Because I think one of the challenges, you can write a good book where you explain the concepts in an abstract way, but I really did my best to add all of these hooks, these one-liners, 
because that means, and also stories, right? Because people will remember that. And that means if you remember it, then you can use it to convince others by telling the same stories or using the same concepts. So that's why writing the book took so long. It was not that I didn't know what to write about, but I wanted to write in a way that people could tell the story without needing me, basically. <laughs> right. That that story you had of when you took over the team and somebody said to you, their exact quote was, you took the shortest route to the exit. I, yeah. I actually started laughing. Like I had that highlighted twice. I'm like, yeah. that I, I'm pretty sure I've heard that at least twice in my career. But yeah. that's that's great. So talking about the talking about putting the story together, Martin, one of the other concepts you introduced, which I think is really resonant, is the idea of friction as the yeah. metaphor as to to why we have problems, right? And you define friction as anything that increases the chance of surprises occurring. Yeah. Um, and you actually identify three different types of friction. So what are they, Martin, and how do they tie into why we really need these sprint goals? Yeah. So basically, uh, Stephen Bungay came up, came up with the three gaps model, and he was like a military, military historian, ex, I think, Boston Consulting Group consultant. And he wrote a whole book, which is really great. It's called The Art of Action. And he basically talks about these three gaps. So basically, you have a knowledge gap, which means you don't know as much as you'd like. Right. So if you have more friction, this gap increases. There's more stuff that you don't know. And okay. So then you have the alignment gap. So when you pe tell people to do something, they're not going to do it exactly as, as you want because they don't have the, like instructions are not perfect or stuff is a little bit different than expected. And then you have the alignment gap, which is basically when uh, uh, even if you have perfect plans and actions, they might not have the intended results. So yeah, so you don't get the exact results that you want. The more friction, the more. So it's a very nice model because I always talk about it as agile from first principles, right? Like if you have this model and you understand friction, then you also understand like um, why we need sprint goals and why we need humble planning. Because basically the more friction, the more surprises, the more your plans and actions have to change to achieve the desired results. And that also means that the people that do the work as they discover what's necessary while they do the work, they need to be capable of changing the plans. And that's where the sprint goal comes in, where it's kind of like tells you like, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I know we've encountered some surprises, but because you have the context and know what we're trying to achieve, you can make changes. Uh, and yeah, that's what's called the commander's intent, right? Like, mm -hmm, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. The David Marquet stuff. Uh, yeah. There was there was an, uh, another one-liner that I that I really it, it flashed out to me earlier in the book. You, you, there's a quote where you say experts may limit your options by injecting noise and speculation into your plans because they believe they know more than they actually do. And when I read this, like first of all, everybody, no offense to our data architect audience, <laughs> but we've all been led astray by enterprise architecture, right? We've yeah. all been led astray, right? Um, but also, it made me think of that Elon Musk quote, where he his four steps for successful yeah. delivery talks about you know uh, nothing you know if you have don't trust the requirements written by the expert because yeah. they have that very surgically almost surgically targeted view of things. It's there's there's a false sense of confidence there. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. I think it's really dangerous, especially when we're building software products, which are complex, right? So. I think it's very difficult to predict. So for some reason, I'm cursed, right? I've been involved in like seven rebuilds <laughs> and all of them took longer than expected. But the main thing I learned from that is when people are like kind of scarred, you know, from this rebuild and they know exactly like, this is all the stuff that's wrong with the old system. And then they design a new system and they fix all those problems. The problem is you're going to introduce your own set of problems because it's just very difficult to predict all the behavior of a complex system. And uh, yeah, I think this is one of the challenges being an expert, like, yeah, it helps, right? But it's also risky <laughs> sometimes when you, you think you know more than you do. That's going to be the pull quote left for when we do the episode on how did Agile lead us astray? Because Martin just nailed it, right? We thought we knew, <laughs> we created these plans. And then to his point, there's no way to model what how actors are going to behave in a complex system. And that's where goofy stuff kind of happens. Um <laughs> There was, there was, I mean, there was so much in this book we could spend hours. There was a, there was another quote I want to talk about before we go into the actual sprint goal piece where you had, you had a quote from Charles Revlon yeah. where he talked about the importance of creating a customer, but also creating a customer with monetization yeah. and how um, creating a customer, creating customer value without monetization means your product will go back bankrupt. Capturing business value without creating customer value means customers will stop paying at some point and your product will go belly up. Yeah. And um, the, the pull quote is from Charles Revlon where he says, in the factory, we make cosmetics. In the store, we sell hope. 
And that was really, really resonant to me because I just had that conversation with Chris Anderson where we talked about, you know, what's going on in the agile world. And he's talking about his, his leadership coaching. And he talks about how sometimes we get too hung up. We had a discussion where we sometimes we get too hung up in things like cycle time or throughput or flow yeah. efficiency. And at the end of the day, our bosses don't care. They want to acquire a customer. They want that customer to transact. They want to maintain. They need to be an active customer. So it, it was a good reminder to me to go back to go back to the beginning and don't lose the plot. And at the end of the day, we are making something that needs to be profitable. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. So I, I'm in the same camp, right? I think like all this focus on cycle time and improving flow, I think that's, that is that is important. Right? I'm not saying it isn't important, but at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. If we're not creating value, we're not capturing that value. I mean, then we have a big problem and that's where it all starts. And I think the, the biggest problem I see is that um, it, it's so difficult to make a product that is valuable, right? It, it, like, like we have all these ideas, these preconceived notions of what makes something valuable, but um, yeah, I don't know if I tell the story in the book, but for example, the shopping cart was invented by a, a, a grocer, I think in Oklahoma. And uh, so he had the brilliant idea, right? Like people come in my store and they need to buy groceries and they, they fill their bag and then they leave. But what if they had a bigger bag? You know, they would, they, so that was, that was how the, the, the idea was. So he made these shopping carts and he put them in front of his store and nobody used them. And then he started asking people, why are you not using them? Because people were scared of looking ridiculous with these <laughs> carts. So what he did is actually hire actors to walk around, you know, with shopping carts. And then other people saw, oh, this is useful. And then at some point it was adopted. So the main thing why I'm telling these stories, even if you have something that's valuable, like the shopping cart, there may be these obstacles that you didn't anticipate. And that's why I think it's, yeah, it's super important that uh, we focus on that and not uh, like, Instead of 100 shopping carts per week, we're in, we're producing 1,000 shopping carts per week because that's not the problem if nobody uses it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so in in the intro, Martin, we talked about how, or I talked about how you tie a lot of these concepts together. The idea of sprint goals, vision, um, yeah. mission, even things like product goals. Can you can you talk? Can you inform our audience a little bit about how how a sprint goal actually ties to a product goal? How these two things feed that? There was a there was a diagram in the book somewhere with a tree and yeah. and it also talks about epics and backlog yeah. items yeah. can you explain how that all those things kind of munge yeah. together yeah so what's interesting is in the book i don't make a big separation between product goals and sprint goals so what i basically say is we all know what an epic is an epic is something that it's too big to work on a product goal is also too big to work on so before you start working an epic you need to break it down into smaller chunks like uh, user stories or product backlog items or whatever you want to break it down into the same thing is with this, the product goal. Like you need to break it down in something smaller. That's the sprint goal. So apart from that, a product goal exhibits all the same characteristics, right? Like, like you still need to describe like, hey, what are we trying to achieve? Why does it matter? Like that commander's intent, right? But the main difference is in the sprint, you're actually doing the work. So you're producing an output. So you're producing a feature or more features, but you still need to make sure that is what you're doing contributing to the outcome, Right. And, and that's where the product goal can really help because, yeah, it, it's too big, right? But it can guide the creation. And in the sprint goal, you always need to keep in the back of mind, uh, like, hey, what are we trying to achieve? So that's kind of how I link the two. So I don't think there's a big distinction apart from the size. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So at this point in the book, you start talking about, you start with the, the, the leading question of what happens when you don't use sprint goals. Yeah. And Lef, I'm going to ask you, have you worked in this company? Because I, I I have worked in this company at least twice, Compl- where completing all the work in the sprint becomes the goal. There is acceptance criteria of the product backlog items, and they become a contract. And there is no way to validate in what way individual work contributes to the bigger picture. Andrew, have that's you not worked? how it's supposed to work. That's- Wait, that's not the proper way of how it's supposed to end. <laughs> I just watched 25 years of my career down the toilet. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've been to that company. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We've I've all been, been there. Yeah, we all have right, the t-shirt. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so, Martin, you also you flesh out some of the things that happen when you don't use sprint goals. Uh, and then you talk about, you talk about, okay, so if you're going to do a sprint goal, here's some things you want to, you start wanting to start thinking about. And one of the things you, you mentioned early on is start with the objective of the sprint before making the sprint plan or pulling in backlog items. Yes. This sounds almost counterintuitive. And I'm sure we have some product people who are going, what? 
Can you explain why that is the way we should be thinking about these things? Yeah, because basically you always should be thinking about like, what is the one most important thing we're trying to achieve in this next sprint? That that should be the sprint goal. And, and that should be always be top of mind. And and yeah, of course you can take a look at the, the product backlog, right? But that's what you should be starting it. Like, hey, let's say we, we want to... And I think that really helps because the moment you start with the, the product backlog, right? Like pulling in work, then the sprint goal becomes an afterthought. And, and because the product backlog is often phrased as outputs, right? Certain features, then you're going to reverse engineer what you're trying to achieve from your outputs. And I think you should start the other way around. What are we trying to achieve and why does it matter? Because that's the outcome. And then you pull in the work necessary. And then of course you can make it smaller or you can rework it, right? And I think the key thing there is you need to create a safe environment because you tell them, hey, like, what could be a good goal for the next two, two weeks? Doesn't matter if it's too big or too small. Like, and then and then then you have a goal. Then you pull in work. Oh, wait, this is too big, or this is we can pull in more. I mean, then you can have a conversation. But I do think that's the key thing. If you start with the product backlog, you often start with the outputs, and then you're going to reverse engineer, uh, yeah, the outcome, and that's bad. <laughs> Uh, and along with that, you talk about. So I'm come I'm coming there. I'm coming to this meeting, and we're setting our our sprint goal. And we're not worried about the product backlog so far. We're really just looking about what are we trying to achieve. You have a there's a question later in the book, which I think is probably the best heuristic I've seen regarding a sprint goal, where you say, if we the question is if we set this sprint goal without looking at the backlog, do we believe it's possible to achieve? And to me, that is the most elegantly beautiful binary YN. Real quickly, you set the sprint goal, then you say, well, "Don't worry about the backlog." Can we? Can we do this? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't think we should. We should, also, should not be afraid of failure, right? So if we think we have a reasonable chance, let, let's go for it. And and as long as we think we made the most progress, then life is great. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, we often suck at predicting. So yeah. <laughs> so I have a question. If I can jump yeah. in, so. One of the things that I, I think you started, Jay, you started to allude to, and the both of you were kind of talking about um, earlier in the discussion, talk, talk to me or, or talk to us about how you translate sprint goals into something consumable at, at a senior level, right? So a lot of times they're used as weapons to, to say, that's not a goal, right? Are team goals truly just for the team or sprint goals, I should say, just for the sprint team or do they scale, right? Yeah. Should the organization be understanding what they are and how to use them? And whose who's kind of role is it to teach in that yeah. sense? Yeah. So I have to be frank, right? So uh, I'm a product person, but I as well understand Agile. So a lot of the conversation I've had with this C-level or the stakeholders I was doing that, but I think uh, an agile coach or a, a good product person who understands agile both can do it. I don't. I think it doesn't really matter who does it as long as they have sufficient expertise and influencing skills. I think that's the key thing to convince these, uh, yeah, C level people, right, who are not always easy to convince. <laughs> so, I think the the main thing I always try to do is so one of the biggest challenges is you've got all these stakeholders. And you've got like the sales, the marketing, customer success, the CEO, they all have different interests, right? And that's what I generally tend to see. So the moment you say, hey, we're going to set a goal and we're going to work on one thing at, thing at a time, that means one person is happy and the rest is unhappy. And, and yeah, um, I think the main thing I try to do is to, to talk to the different stakeholders and try to, to explain to them, look, there are two things we can do. We can work on your three or four things all at once, which means they're all going to be delivered later. And you don't have control over what gets delivered first. Or we work one thing at a time, which means we can decide what matters, what gets delivered first, and they're all going to be delivered faster. What do you want? And of course, all they want is they all want it to be delivered faster. And that's kind of where I had a lot of success. And I also want to be frank, right? So uh, I've also had failures, right? I, I've not always been able to convince people, uh, but this has worked uh, pretty well for me. And I think that's the main thing. Like they generally care about stuff get, getting delivered faster. And I think this frames it in in a way in something they care about. Well, I, I forget Makes the sense. book. I forget the book. I came across it, but I, I it might have been Kurt Bittner's book, uh, the Purple Book on, on Agile Leadership, where he talks about how there's when you look at the corporate hierarchy, yeah, there's this fog in the middle. Yeah, 
right? Aside from the fog, below the fog are the people on the teams, the managers of the teams. Their biggest concern is getting the work done, the work that they've been tasked with. That's their biggest concern, getting the work done, being content, delivering good product, good value, so on and so forth. But he says above that fog line, and the reason I think, I don't think he uses the metaphor fog, I am because it shifts. All the people at the top of the totem pole, they care most about what they promised to somebody. Be it another executive, a stakeholder, that they made a commitment somewhere. They promised somebody something. So that's their motivator. So maybe, maybe that as, and I'm thinking in real time, so this is probably going to come out janky, but Andrew, to your point and to what Martin was saying, maybe there's a, there's an argument there to be made about, Hey, you you made a commitment to somebody. These sprinkles are going to help us visualize where in this commitment we've actually landed and then where we're going to go next. And Mm -hmm. I, 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 that was a, it was an epiphany to me to realize that the top of the world, top of the pole, they don't really care about, you know, my widget. They care about, Hey, I promised Martin over in HR that we're going to have this system update done. (laughs) I need to get this system update done. Where are we with the system update? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, I think this may be an additional layer, right? So, so what I also write about in book, it's really important to understand your stakeholders and what they care about. And if you know their commitments, then you could actually tell them like, Hey, you want to make those commitments. This is your best chance of succeeding. So that will be a good way of phrasing it. Yeah, so I like kind of where this is going in the sense. So we've kind of gone up the ladder. So what if we come back down the ladder? Where have yeah. you seen uh, sprint goals help unify a team or divide a team or align, yeah. right? So how has it helped uplift a yeah. team to understand that better genetic makeup of what a team is and, and yeah. what a team shouldn't be? Yeah, so I think... We have already talked about it a little bit, but I think if your team is unable to set a single goal, that usually is a symptom of other problems, right? So an example could be, it's a component team. So they serve five different teams. So they have five different things they're working on at the same time. So these are just cases where I'm like, if it doesn't really fit your context, then you can do two two things. Like either you fix the context, right? Or you, I don't think sprint goals will really work. You know, I wouldn't force it. I'm very pragmatic. Uh, but there are many, there are also other cases. Let's say you're sunsetting an application, right? So making all these small improvements. Because, yeah, so yeah, you can have a sprint goal, like finish 10 little small things. It's also not going really going to work, right? So, um, but that being that being said, there are cases where it really helps. I do think one of the main things where it helps is if you don't have a sprint goal, what I generally tend to see is what is um, pulled in at the beginning of the sprint needs to be finished at the end of the sprint. So this is what I call Anaconda-style Scrum, right? And and very often what you see is that these teams are incredibly frustrated because they almost never finish everything in the sprint. There's just always one thing which Uh they don't finish for whatever reason. So I think the biggest upside for teams is that you get this positive momentum going, right? Instead of every sprint retrospective, like we didn't finish this one thing or this tiny thing, like 80% or 90% of the sprint, you're going to have success. And the reason for that is because when you start the sprint, right, like uh, quality is fixed. That's the definition of done, right? The sprint length is fixed. The the resources, the people on the people are are fixed. So scope has to be flexible. And that's where really the sprint goal really, really helps. Uh, yeah. Um, I hope it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that does. That's an interesting, the way that, you know, we kind of are rigid in certain things and then... It, <laughs> I swear, I literally almost fell out of my chair and you're like, scope is flexible. And that is a hard thing to to deal with, right? Especially with without the guardrails around backlog health and truly understand, right? So I, I really want to lean into, okay, yeah. sprinkles, are we achieving our goal? Does this work help us get to that goal? So it does use it as a grounding strap in a way for the team to understand that it's not just transactional right we're not just doing every single thing in the backlog there's a goal yeah. to doing these things so I, I like that a lot I'm, I'm gonna borrow that but I'll give you credit <laughs> <laughs> we need to we need to facilitate micro payments so we can send people <laughs> I, I would owe so many people so I, Jorgen Hesselberg will be retired at this point with all the times I've used this book um but you you some of the other things you talk about um Martin is at one point, you bring up some of the, the 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 heuristic that we all use, which is around smart goals, yeah. and you actually you actually call that question you, you question that a bit in the usage of smart goals. And the one liner you used, which which stuck with me, was humans care more about more than facts, and yeah. facts alone are not enough to make us care. 
So it's like, it's, this can tie to Daniel Kahneman and all that work with how we actually think and how most of our decision-making is emotional, where you can tell me that this, you can tell me, Jay, that your blood pressure is too high and you really need to watch out. But Jay, you're still going to go and want to get that salt bagel with extra scallion cream cheese, knowing that your blood pressure is too high, right? Like, I know it's the fact, but it might not really change me at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, uh, yeah. So basically, what I think is so if you watch like documentaries, right, or, or about like creative people that achieve amazing things. So I, I saw a while back like documentary about industrial light and magic. So the people behind Star Wars, like the first dinosaur in Jurassic Park that was running. So what is very interesting is you see a high sense of play, like playing around, experimenting, like these people are enjoying themselves, right? And, 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 very often what I see, especially in more corporate context, that we become very rigid and very like follow the plan. And we use like this, we lose this human side. Mm-hmm. So that's why in the book I talk about like, yeah, you, of course you need to have outcome oriented smart goals, right? You need, you need to be able to measure, but it's not enough. Like people don't care about that stuff. So for example, increase shopping cart conversion by 2%, right? Yeah. Like it's not enough to make someone care. Like, and and, right. and that's why. I have a different acronym, which is FOCUS. And the first one is FUN, right? Come up with a memorable, at least memorable, right? But preferably something fun, a title for your sprint goal. Because then it, then it's something that people can drop in conversation or they make a joke about during a sprint. And then it's alive. Because if people can easily talk about it, that means they make and make decisions about it. And the moment it's this long one-liner where everything is factual, correct, nobody's going to talk about it. It's right, like- <laughs> right. Right. It's you're bo- you're boring people to death with details. And there is there is the there is a a and you, you touched on it. But this is another episode we should do. The lack of humor in a lot of corporate and serious enterprise type structures where um I know there's HR concerns with you know some people don't know where the line is, but at the same time, we need to bring that enjoyment into work to some extent. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I don't really care about, you know. Increase productivity by Y percent. That's not a fun goal for me, but hey, you know, allow people to have more fun at work by giving them more free time. You know, there's there's something to be said there. You 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 touch on when you talk about at one point in the book, you're talking about uh, sprint goals and then um, how to how to how to tailor them and how they tie to the product goals and some of the bigger the, bigger concepts like vision and strategy. And you you actually have this one liner. We should operate with the belief that what we do isn't valuable until we can hand over evidence that it is valuable. And that, nice. that was another one. It's up on a post-it over here <laughs> because it's one of those things where just assume that what I'm doing isn't valuable until I can prove it to my customer, my stakeholder, that's that HR executive, that my boss's boss's boss committed that we're going to have the rewrite done. That mental model actually it changes how you look at what you're doing, the work you're doing, the heads down, churn, 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 churn. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so I actually recently read a book and this is about Pixar, right? So if you think about a company that has figured out like a recipe for success, probably the poster child is Pixar. But if you read how they work, and this the book is Creativity Inc. So it's by their CEO, Ed Catmull. What's very fascinating, what he actually says is, all of our movies suck early on. And it's our job to make them not suck. So it's basically the same thing as what I'm saying. I read this later, by the way. Um, so what I find fascinating is their mindset is, so they have a brain trust. So every regularly they review their movies, like the storyboards, and then the director gets feedback. And they just watch the movie and see, is this, is this really enjoyable? Like, is it touching people's hearts? Is it like good for kids and adults? Like they really review their movies. And then, uh, yeah, that's the leading thing, not whether it's delivered on time. Toy Story 1, like, was actually, they did this, and then Disney said, the movie is terrible. Go back to the drawing board. Uh, The movie Up, originally, was about a king in the sky, like, with two Mm -hmm. kid sons that hated each other. Well, if you've seen Up, the the ultimate movie was nothing like it, because they were not able to make the story work. So then they figured out a story that did work, and it was one of the best movies, uh, animation movies of all time. (laughs) Your point about hitting the date. Uh, I just finished the book. It was, I think it was called Masters of Doom. It was oh, about yeah? John Romero and John Carmack. I've also read it. Good okay. Book. <laughs> and he talks about, at one point, John Carmack talks about how I would rather deliver quality late than deliver junk on time. 
because yeah. and they were they, he ties that too when you once you burn your customers i'll be honest with you so I, I i i play xbox right it's nice to turn my brain off and play video games there i bought the last version of battlefield and it was so bad i will never go back to that franchise ever 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 again <laughs> yeah. and i don't yeah. care what they do but it was it was buggy it was laggy the, the you know, people were flying tanks like flying tanks like look everybody gets a little drunk and has delusions but this was bad and they they hit the date they were looking for but the quality was questionable and then they spent another year in patching hell and they've now i'm i'm sure i can't be the only customer who said forget that yeah. it was terrible yeah so actually valve software which is like the famous game developer uh, behind half-life behind steam they actually have this concept which they call valve valve time which is on their developer wiki basically every game they've delivered is late and uh yeah and and, and i think this is a very common theme because basically i think shigeru miyamoto from nintendo said like uh, a del- delayed game may be good but a rushed game is bad forever <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so this that whole conversation right about delayed game martin that ties to what you were talking about earlier with the fog of the unknown yeah. and then the 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 um the the overconfident planning where yeah. and it, it, even in the doom book john romero yeah. comes out and says look i said doom 3 would be ready on this date and he literally just like plucked the date out of the air and threw it out there it's 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 hubris it's overconfidence it's that fog of beforehand where you just don't know um speaking of that another thing you yep. talk about is you you tie sprint goals together with product vision product strategy and you you have a quote here which i thought was kind of insightful a large product backlog means you've wasted a lot of effort capturing outdated knowledge yeah. And I left, you're in the product world. You've come across product world in some of your coaching and consulting gigs. How often do you see teams that they, the bulk of their time is just wrangling the backlog, regardless of if it's good or not. It's just, I have this thing I need to manage. Yeah, so definitely. So I want to double click into that and, and, and kind of ask the question in yeah. this way. How do you manage a roadmap? Right. Like you're, we talk about refining a, let's just say a portfolio backlog and we're, we're constantly putting stuff in there, these big rocks. So how do you not over engineer or put too much stale data in the system and ensure, I I know how I answer that, but I'm very curious to to see in your experience, you know, kind of what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So the main thing which I try to do is so. The reality is management and C-level wants forecasts, right? So the main thing I try to do is if they must have forecasts and you're not able to influence them, like, yeah, you don't need a forecast for two or three years from now, then the, the very least you do is separate the planning activity from the forecasting. You understand what I mean? Because if you plan everything out, you, you break everything down and then you use that to drive a forecast, you're still going to be wrong, but you're also just going to make your plans worse. So if you need to make some napkin calculations, right, do that, but just make sure you don't make it part of the plans, like that garbage that you made to come come up with the garbage number. That's the main thing, uh, which I would not do. The other thing is uh, what I tend to do is um, roadmaps, now next later style. Um, So you put the epics on there, what you're working on now, that's broken down in smaller chunks. And then you have a next layer, you have bigger chunks and you may have a forecasted date there, but what I would definitely would not do is break it down. And it's kind of cheating, right? Because you could argue then your product backlog is long, but I think it. I would just see it as a container for, for like, hey, we're going to talk about this when we're closer uh, and you will still have a short backlog because those epics are very big and you won't have a lot of them. So that's kind of my cheating way, uh, but maybe you, you will say that's cheating. <laughs> No, no. Hey, I, I'm always trying to think of creative ways to break, you know, fixed mindset of of how we've done things historically. Right? Yeah. Doesn't mean we should continue to do them. I we we used to joke like that's probably why we don't write on stone tablets anymore because they're heavy. <laughs> right? You need a lot of equipment. So whiteboards are great. We can just erase them. But I do think that there's something around understanding the health of a backlog when it yeah. comes to how much do we need in there, right? How much do we truly need to understand what the next 15 months, three years? I mean, I was working on a roadmap seven years out. I'm like, (laughs) has COVID taught anybody anything, right? You're crazy. Seven years, (laughs) a lot. Look how far we've come in a very short amount of time. So I'm I'm waiting. And that's kind of why I really am, the goal thing is resonating with me as far as, 
I'm waiting for organizations to snap out of that, right? Like when does the change curve right. hit them from a planning perspective to understand we we can't plan the way we used to. Our planning mm-hmm. horizons have to evolve. But anyway, I, I took you on a little bit of a tangent. No, 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 but I completely agree. And I think one of the reasons why I think companies are hesitant is because um, teams often depend on each other, right? So, and then you need to plan that. And and then and, and I think that's where where you go down the rabbit hole of problems, because then you need to know right because the team has a roadmap for a year and you're dependent on them and they are asking you like yeah we need to know because we need to plan it, and then you're screwed and then you get get to all these problems I think uh, yeah and um, that's the biggest challenge I see with this road mapping process that 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 you need to lock down because you need help from another team. Well, instead if we just didn't plan so much and leave more room for collaboration, right? Like uh, so that we expect to help each other. That we uh, that that's I think is where a lot of problems come from. Like we try to fix like uh, how do you say um, these problems with better coordination? Well, in my opinion, it's about getting better at collaborating, and, right. and that means you shouldn't plan so much. <laughs> right. That's the doom loop. Yeah. Oh, our plans didn't work. We need to do more yeah. planning. And then you yeah. end up in this terrible loop where you're you're right. literally spending so much time planning. You're you know plan. Pl- uh, I need a plan for the plan for the plan. And yeah. it's like, well, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> so that that brings yeah. up just another quick question, Jay, if I, yeah. if I can. Um, so through that, right? Like it. This feels very teams driven, right? Yeah. From an organization, it, it kind of bottom up. So have you seen where this bottom up? And, I really dislike that term, but in any case, this this bubbling up effect from teams setting goals, getting comfortable, getting into a rhythm, has it have you seen the change in organizations where that has been, you know, has created an instance where things are starting to move in a different direction, right? We're now starting to snap or pivot away from and do the scope right? We can accommodate scope change because it's constantly changing. So how do we deal with that through goals and so forth? I know I'm kind of being wordy, but I'm very curious to see in your experience, have you seen that change curve hit from that, that bubbling up approach? Yeah, but I I do think you need, you need bottom up, right? But as well, you need someone who's really good at influencing people. Like at the end of the day, what I tend to see is, yeah, um, it's good to have like bottom up evidence that something works, but at the end of the day, uh, C-level often is comfortable with these roadmaps, these features, these timelines. They're not going to let go of that so quickly because, yeah, uh, that's how they uh, feel like they have control over things. So I do think that an essential component is someone who is able to influence and show them like, hey, see, this is working. This is why it's working. And look at a roadmapping approach. should be different. We should move to now, next, later, perhaps. Yeah, um, I don't think bottom-up is enough. Like... You need really someone who really understands the sea level and what they care about and talk in their language. And very often this person is uh, missing like, uh, mm. or like unable to achieve results for whatever it's, it's very, I've also failed, right? I, I already acknowledge this. I've also been in situations where I was literally sitting with a CTO and I was unable to convince him like what we're doing is madness. That's literally why I came up with the the, the planning cycle of madness in the book, right? Like, <laughs> because I was not able to convince him. We went through that cycle ten times. I wasn't able to convince him. <laughs> right. We need every time I hear we need better estimates. There's a yeah. scrum fairy that dies every time I hear that. There's a scrum <laughs> fairy that dies. It, but also, I think it ties to, I, and I think you touched on this, Martin and, and Andrew. I think you're poking at it as well. When we get to those people who are worried about the commitments they made, right? To them, yeah. everything is risk. What yes. decision am I making? And what risk am I willing to take? Am I willing to shoulder? And um, Johanna Rothman's got a book coming out, Project Life Cycles, where she talks about, she actually compares waterfall, agile, and somewhere in between, where she says it all comes down to the risk profile and what you're willing what you're willing to stomach. And, and there's, I think it's a part of our human OS where I see this giant Gantt chart, this giant plan, and I think there's no risk because I've <laughs> thought about it. And now that I've thought about it and I've said it out loud, we're golden. Not realizing that life life is inevitably going to get in the way. Like you, Andrew, your point about COVID is spot on. I still hear people doing five year roadmaps, and I and I'd be okay with that if they if they acknowledge that like yeah, past year like one, it gets really you're peering you're you're staring through a veil, and then you're staring through a thicker veil and a thicker veil. Well, we kind of have an idea. 
but we're not really sure. But the other thing is, and this is where this is where we can rant about PowerPoint. PowerPoint grows legs, ends up in parts of organizations you don't plan on it ending up on. <laughs> and all you need to do is put together, oh, well, let me just do, Andrew, you're my boss. Let me give you a quick slide. And that quick slide about when I think things get done end up in Martin, the CTO's hands and Martin sees it and he goes, okay, they're committing to have this done by Q3, 2024. And then that message comes back to me and I'm like, what? (laughs) How did this happen? But that's, it's all about risk, right? What are you willing to stomach? And, and I think Martin, the, the sub, the, but now that we've spoken about it aloud, I think the subtext, the subcontent in your book is really around the the influence piece the conversation piece the finding the yeah. time to carve out to get to those influential people who who have yeah. you know the contra the spoon or whatever you want to call it and getting a time in their ear to yeah. say look like we can get this way but it's not really it's not really where we want to go and and it's not, not where we want to go that's not really how we want to think about it and and towards i know we're running out of time but in the book later chapters you talk about the importance of vision and you yeah. also talk about the importance of strategy and how you boil strategy down to, I believe it was diagnosis, guiding policy, yeah. set of coherent actions. Yeah. Can we talk that's, about that? Because that might have tied to something that Lef was was asking about. Yeah. Yeah. So actually that's based in the book from the Rumel. So uh, what the fuck is strategy? Like, I think, I, I, I don't know. If, no, it's, sorry. That's not the title of the book. It's good, bad strategy. I was confusing it with an article. Um, so what's interesting is every company I've worked at I've never seen a strategy. Like I've just seen a plan, like a set of actions. And, 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 and really like even, even at companies where there were McKinsey consultants, like ex McKinsey, like involved in the strategy. And that blows my mind. And I think one of the main things is what is the main challenge we're facing? That's the main part of a strategy. Like what is the obstacle we're trying to overcome? And um, for example, in the book, I used the example of Tesla it's because when Tesla started selling um, or wanted to make electric cars, the biggest challenge they had was there was no market. Like, like that's one of the challenges, right? Like nobody was ready for it. The other challenge is mm-hmm. they didn't have a clue how to make a car at scale. Like they were not a car maker yet. They hadn't done it. You know what I mean? Yep, so yep. they realized like the biggest challenge is this, these are the two biggest challenges. So what they decided to do was to make a car for really uh, rich people you know, expensive car for rich people because they were the most ready. And then as well, that's what they didn't need to produce the skill. They could make money and then they could use that money to fund a cheaper car, right? And this is the Tesla master plan that we all know, right? But I think that's the main thing. We don't spend enough time thinking about like, what is this obstacle or is this challenge? You know, instead we get these 10 to 100 plans that are thrown over the fence, you know, Mm -hmm. like with 10 objectives. And then everybody wants like, why are we doing this? Like, what is, where are we playing to win? And yeah, I think that's the key thing that a strategy should um, inform. Like where, what is our strategic focus? Yeah. Strategy, mission, vision, a lot of those things. I really think that we we use these terms knowing that we should have them, but a lot of companies, and I'll bet Andrew would echo my sentiment. They, when you start asking about these things, they get kind of dodgy when you start asking about these things, because there either isn't one, or there's one, but it's a bunch of just fluff that some marketing person flew together yeah. that that not everybody is truly agreed in saying, yeah, that's to your point. I mean, people love Elon, people hate Elon. He comes into every company with a hundred year plan. This is where it's going to go. And <laughs> the fact that he can stand up and say that this is where this is going to go. I'm going to be dead and it's still going towards this way. That's that speaks volumes, right? And I don't think a lot of companies think that way. And maybe that's why he's able to, to step into an, a market where, like you said, he had no expertise. He had no exposure. And now he's kind of in that EV market. He's eating everybody's lunch. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, the, the I mean, as well, the Tesla master plan, people can remember it. it was three steps, right? Like build an expensive car, use the money to build a cheaper car, use the money. I mean, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the main thing. So I actually do workshops where I ask like people, what is the strategy of the company or what is the vision? And literally, like uh, nobody and can answer these questions. There are even managers in there. Nobody can write it down from the top of your head. And then you have to ask yourself: if you cannot write it down from the top of your head, how can you take it into account for your daily decision making? Right. And I think that's the one of the main things which is forgotten. Like if people cannot remember it, they cannot act upon it. And, and we always need to keep it in mind: it's better to be mm-hmm. clear than to be exhaustive. Because if we're exhaustive, it might be that they don't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Roughly, would you rather be roughly right or precisely wrong? Yep. 
<laughs> well, here's a hot here's a hot take on that, right? So yeah. you could also flip it and say how many big companies that you work for actually you can apply the vision and strategy because most yeah. of us work for finance meaning yeah. the internal finance group within these large companies that yeah. who we serve not you know and so they use the customer as, yeah. as almost the the reason why we're here but it's it's to make money right yeah. and how do we capitalize that money or or offset that money but in any case it's it's no. all interesting. I think if if there's a way to use this to 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 really illuminate the imbalance in an organization that we are 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 morally bankrupt, right? We don't we're not investing in the values and core of the organization because we can't even define good goals for people to align to. I think that this is a I don't know. I'm a bit of a, a radical, so I, I love you know, public shaming, let's put it all out there, right? Let's open the kimono, <laughs> let everyone see, you know, kind of what what we don't want people to see, because at some point, that shock value has to initiate something. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so we're quickly running up on time. <clears throat> Martin, if people want to find you, they want to find your book, where do they go? Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon is probably the best place to go. It's called Driving Value with Sprint Goals written by me, Martin Dalmain. And yeah, it's the only book on Sprint Goals. So probably if you just search for a book on Sprint Goals, it's the only one that's going to pop up. So <laughs> Perfect. And we will we will definitely put a, a link in the show notes um, for anybody who's listening who wants to, to go directly to Amazon. So first of all, Martin, I want to thank you for taking time out of your afternoon to speak to Andrew and I today. This has been a fun conversation. Uh, Andrew, thank you once again. On behalf of Andrew, myself, and Martin, we want to thank all of our listeners. Uh, we might even do some video this time. I'm not sure Andy Clef is the video guru. I don't mess with that stuff. Um, but I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening once again. Uh, if you like what you heard, please like, listen, and subscribe. Give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. It does help us out. Uh, if you're if you're interested in offsetting the cost of production and hosting, we do have a Patreon. Uh, we don't really push it, but it is out there. And hey, you probably get some free gifts from me. I have all sorts of junk and tchotchkes, <laughs> so tons of junk to send your way. And lastly, we want to thank Machine Man <laughs> Records and the artist Krebs who gave us their, uh, their outro music free of charge, royalty free. So until next time, on behalf of Martin, Andrew, myself, I want to thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, this is the Adjure Uprising podcast signing out. Signing out.